a backwater frozen in time. That's how many New Zealanders saw their country in 1981. We all worked nine to five Monday to Friday, and after that, the shops were shut. Everything from interest rates to wages were frozen, and our Kiwi dollar was set at a fixed rate. Amidst this peaceful and stable scenario, there was one man more than any other who controlled our lives, Robert Muldoon. But he came dangerously close to ruining that stability over rugby. All around the world, countries were refusing to play sport with South Africa in protest at its racist apartheid regime. But when it was announced that the Springboks were to tour New Zealand, the first team to come here for nearly 20 years, Muldoon would not make a stand. The result for New Zealand was virtual civil war. Rugby Union is going to go ahead with the tour. Uh, I'm convinced of that. Uh, the government doesn't want it to go ahead. Uh, in accordance with our policy, we are not going to stop them. New Zealand's passionate rugby fans were adamant the tour should go ahead. In an unprecedented action, they even took to the streets shouting slogans and wielding placards. Faced with such strong feelings on both sides, from rugby fans and anti-tour protesters, the police began training specialist riot squads. Operation Rugby was born. When the Springbok plane touched down at Auckland Airport on July 19, 1981, no one, not even those riot squads, realised what was to come. The next ten weeks were to change New Zealand forever. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, buckle up for safety, everybody. This is your pal, Tim. Tim Hanlon, that is. Reporting for duty, and of course, you have found Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming on by. We appreciate your downloading us and or streaming us or, or, or however you're listening or enjoying this uh, week's episode. Uh, to no end do we um, bow humbly in your general direction uh, in a, uh, a huge swath of appreciation. Uh, this week, a fascinating conversation, a complicated one, but still a, a, an amazing uh, story of, of sports commingling with politics uh, on the international stage, we go back to 1981. That clip sets the tone for it. Our guest this week, Derek Katzem, professor at the University of Texas Permian Basin, with a brand new book about what we're going to be discussing. The book is called Flashpoint, How a Little-Known Sporting Event Fueled America's Anti-Apartheid Movement. Now, apartheid, we know about it. History tells us that around 1948 or so, the abhorrent policy of apartheid in South Africa became essentially the sort of governing law of the land. We know in 1968, some 20 years later, the international uh, disdain and movement against this apartheid uh, system was really starting to take on a whole new level with the United Nations issuing a, uh, a sporting boycott that spilled over into Olympics uh, in the years uh, afterwards and, and continued to sort of haunt South Africa as a nation uh, until finally in 1994 uh, with the release of Nelson Mandela and a whole bunch of other things, um, 
the abhorrent uh, policy of apartheid finally coming uh, to an end and ushering in a brand new chapter in uh, in South African history. But around this time, 1981 was really in the thick of things. And the clip that you just heard uh, kind of sets the tone for what we're going to be talking about uh, as the Springboks. Yes, that's the nickname of the South African uh, rugby union, uh, if you will, national, de facto national team, uh, world uh, uh, dominating on, on many fronts. Uh, one of the handful of nations that has reigned supreme in the sport of of uh, of, of rugby. Um, and in 1981, were uh, ostensibly the world champions uh, and were set to uh, to take uh, a tour, uh, a playing tour with a couple of national tests against the uh, national team of New Zealand, uh, nicknamed the All Blacks. And uh, by that uh, uh, sort of that clip, you can get a sense that uh, it was a controversial tour even before it began. Uh, this, that came from a 2001 documentary from the uh, uh, New Zealand television network called TVNZ. And it really sets the tone for, for what we're going to get into. Uh, this tour, uh, as you can imagine, fraught with peril, uh, safety issues, and just outright political um, friction. As uh, fans of uh, rugby, union rugby, uh, essentially were just eager to see uh, New Zealand, uh, the national team, play that of South Africa, arguably at the time in 1981, the two top teams in the world. And it had been uh, years since they the two had met. Uh, the tour was uh, uh, going to be constituted of a, of a number of matches with regional teams, including three test matches. And the rugby, for sure, was going to be uh, intense. Uh, but no one uh, I don't think even after vast preparation was prepared for the uh, that intensity to spill over and in an explosive form uh, in not only domestic politics uh, and uh, in New Zealand, but then also uh, on a worldwide level. It was a powder keg and it became a national and international event. And here's the irony of it. I mean, there was lots of violence and there were protests. Uh, there was uh, beatings in the streets. There were uh, there was uh, bombings, if you will, with flour. Uh, and other sort of uh, 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 assorted distractions in the midst of of matches. It was just a, a sheer, uh, just a, a crazy uh, tour over the la- over the month or so uh, that they were in uh, New Zealand. But here's the kicker, and this is what we're going to be talking about with Derek coming up in just a few moments. Not only was it crazy there in New Zealand, but this tour was then also supposed to come to the United States after finishing up in New Zealand. We'll find out why the craziness of such, why why we'd even want to continue to do so, right? Given this sort of international uproar uh, against South Africa and its political system, uh, the the uh, anticipated and followed through uh, craziness and violence surrounding the tour in New Zealand, why the hell would they want to come to the United States, right? Which itself had kind of st- uh, staked out its own uh condemnation of South Africa and its and its principles and its policies. Um, but uh, you're going to find out that this tour was uh, immediately upon arriving in the United States for what was going to be uh, a handful of matches and a test match against the, uh, the fledgling United States national team as well, was quickly derailed as well 
and became a flashpoint, literally and figuratively, as the name of Derek's book uh, suggests, uh, a, a catalyst in many respects to draw attention, a, a big Klieg light onto the apartheid issue uh, in the minds of the United States uh, populace, where you could make the argument that uh, it was not uh, uh, deeply understood or uh, broadly known. But sure enough, uh, from 1981 onward, uh, it became much more of a, a conscious uh, uh, effort of, of people in the United States who, who recognized uh, and frankly saw a lot of parallels to uh, the plight of uh, segregation and racism in the United States. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it took a while, but it became not only a movement uh, of international proportions, but uh, the big old bad United States finally kind of got its act together and uh, uh, got serious about its uh, uh, its uh, disdain uh, for uh, what was going on in South Africa. And as we get into our conversation, the 1981 Rugby Union Tour of the Springboks of South Africa is the flashpoint that we're going to be talking about uh, in this week's episode. This is a fascinating conversation. I learned a ton. I'm not a huge rugby uh, guy, I, I fully admit. Uh, and I was vaguely familiar with this story from 1981, probably more from news reports than it was about the, uh, the playing of the games. And by the way, the games were essentially hidden from view. That's how bad things got. Uh, the protests were that significant uh, that the games that were designed to essentially be, I don't know, uh, somewhat uh, uh, of a of a of a visit of the top uh, team in the world to the United States, a itself a very fledgling and very sort of embryonic still rugby, not even a rugby nation, uh, with all due respect to Major League Rugby and all that that's coming that's come about ever, ever since. Um, but even that was not to be had because the. The political realities uh, soon overtook the anything, any modicum uh, of sporting value that uh, that was to be had or or assumed uh, in this tour. We're going to get into all of that. It is it is a dynamic and a fascinating conversation, and I highly recommend the book. Again, it's called Flashpoint: How a Little Known Sporting Event Fueled America's Anti-Apartheid Movement, uh, and it just came out a couple of days back. And uh, it's a great conversation. So stay tuned for it. It is coming up right after this little promotional message. And we spin our little wheel of intrigue this week to our friends at Royal Retros. Yeah, that's the former four, 503 Sports. RoyalRetros.com, the king of throwbacks. Yes, RoyalRetros.com, a promo code for you there. When you visit there early and often and purchase early and often, the promo code there is SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases. That's our pal Dustin Alameda out in, um, I, where is he? On the West Coast somewhere. I, you know, I, 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 I think it's Portland, Oregon. That's right. And uh, just as you've heard me talk about many, many, many times, Royal Retros uh, by 503 Sports, royalretros.com. Uh, tremendous shirts uh, and, uh, and garb, but also fantastic. Handcrafted, one of a kind. Uh, uh, uniforms of your uh, jerseys. Uh, there's all kinds of apparel and hats and stuff, but the jerseys are just fascinating and fantastic and wonderfully made uh, and all kinds of different leagues and, and teams and stuff. So various football leagues of the past, uh, baseball, there's a nice, great new collection uh, of uh, in celebration and con celebration with the uh, National uh, Negro League uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, so lots of great Negro League teams. 
there's even a collection devoted to the Senior Professional Baseball Association. Uh, a couple of episodes we've discussed about that from 1989 and 90. Uh, some hockey jerseys, some ABA basketball ones. And there's a really cool little section um, that I, uh, I, I divert your attention to. It's uh, in the collections section. It's called Propro- Proposed, he says, been a long day, Proposed Teams. These are uniforms and shirts and even mini helmets that are devoted to teams that were announced and perhaps even sort of in motion, but never fully came to be. So, for example, the New Jersey Swamp Dragons. Do you remember them? Yeah, they were a team that was sort of uh, trying to remember. Was it an arena football league team? It might have been. Um, the uh, Baltimore Bombers uh, were uh, a uh, a team that were, uh, I think, essentially supp- part of a uh, an effort to get a, a proposed NFL team in the mid 1990s. Uh, that, of course, got wrapped up into the the CFL and their uh, ventures into the United States and the Baltimore CFLs or the Baltimore, they don't call them the Stallions, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, fascinating that. But the Bombers jersey in a couple of different versions, you can get a, a Baltimore Bombers mini helmet. Yes, the team that never happened. Um, there's even uh, a shirt devoted to the uh, ill-fated and never launched tor- 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 yes, Toronto. Oh, man, it has been a long day. I apologize. The Toronto Northmen, right, which you WFL scholars now know were never to be, but actually, uh, Mr. Bassett and friends instead relocated the franchise that was going to be in Toronto into Memphis to become the Memphis Southmen. Well, you want the Northmen logo uh, in various uh, 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 sort of T-shirt formats? You can get that and many, many more items, not only other teams that, that were never, uh, that never came to pass, but also tons of teams that did come to pass. Uh, but then, then it themselves actually fully passed, uh, as they came and went all of that and more, and I'm not doing it nearly, uh, as full service as it, uh, as it needs. You got to go to royalretros.com and see what I'm talking about. And again, once you find something, and it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when you find something or some things you want to use that promo code seats, S E A T S. Promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Again, royalretros.com, the king of throwbacks. Thank you to Dustin. Thank you to uh, the entire team at Royal Retros. And thank you, of course, kind listeners for listening intently each and every week. And uh, this week, hopefully, will be uh, no exception. uh, And you will be rewarded uh, handsomely with our conversation. Let's get to it. Let's talk about this crazy, insane 1981 rugby union tour by the Springboks of South Africa, not only in New Zealand, but in the United States and the chaos that ensued. Here's our conversation that we had just a couple of weeks back. Please, as always, enjoy. I'm the first to admit I'm not the most gigantic of rugby fans, although I am following Major League Rugby. It is accessible enough to me. I'm fascinated by uh, the culture and I'm I'm pretty sure that that MLR has got something um, something going for itself right now. I I think uh, it's, it's on television fairly frequently and all that stuff. Um, but rugby, I think, to the average American fan, right, is uh, uh, it tends to be a little bit esoteric and and probably dominated uh, by one's uh, I guess orbit if they've been uh, born and raised elsewhere where rugby is. Uh, just short of a religion. Um, South Africa certainly has got to be one of those places. Uh, but enlighten me as to how you 
came into rugby and this particular story first? Sure. So it started off uh, in the place where you should never make life decisions in the Rat and Parrot pub in Grahamstown, South Africa. Uh, I was there in 1997 on a post-grad fellowship. Uh, the way it came about it really is that I was finishing up my master's degree and wanted to spend some time abroad. I'd never been abroad, uh, but I grew up poor and my my master's and PhD topics were, were American on race and politics and, and uh, civil rights and that kind of thing. And so I needed someone else to pay for it. So I, I, I won this fellowship and I didn't want to just go spend a year on a beach in Australia, though that would have held some appeal. Um, so I, I said, well, what is more logical than South Africa and apartheid? And so I, I went over and I, I started picking up South Africa as a research field for my, my scholarship. Uh, but I, I started sort of paying attention to the sports because that's something you do if you're a sports fan. And I was I had run track in college. I played football in high school. Um, and so I met a bunch of guys and they kept saying the same thing. You got to try out for the rugby team. You got to try out for the rugby team. I was working out a lot. I was, I was fairly good size. I was still in okay shape. Um, and so finally, the Saturday night before trials, they, uh, they, they, they filled me up enough at the Rat and Parrot that I went out for, for trials for the rugby team that Monday. Um, and it was, it was kind of brutal um, in a lot of ways, but I did it and I made the team. And the first live rugby match I ever saw in my life was starting at right wing uh, at, at Rhodes University in a place called King Williamstown in the Eastern Cape. And within a minute of my first game of rugby, I uh, had the ball in my hand. And within a minute and five seconds of the start of my first game of rugby, I was a sprawled out mess on the pitch and a love affair began. Uh, and, and from that point on, I, I obviously began paying more attention to racial questions. And of course, the Springboks were huge and I became a, you know, a, a, a fan, but a conflicted fan, much like my fandom with the Boston Red Sox, who have a really difficult history with with race as well. Uh, and then after that, I'd always wanted, you know, I, I, I don't just write about sports, but I I always wanted to. And, I, and I'd done some stuff writing about South African sport in the Springboks and so forth. And I discovered this bizarre game or series of games that the Springboks played in the United States. And I kind of filed it away while I worked on other projects. And finally, it all just kind of came together. I started working on it, wrote a proposal, got an agent, and sort of the rest ends up being Flashpoint. Well, so give give the sort of uh, naive uh, American sports fan a little bit of an insight into just uh, this, the, the, the sheer passion behind the sport of rugby especially in places like South Africa, because it's kind of like religion. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I mean, the, the place where it probably comes closest to a civic religion is is in a place like New Zealand, um, where there are 3.5 million people and yet they're the best rugby playing nation on earth. Uh, but also in certain communities in South Africa, it certainly is that way. It's interesting because it's the Springboks are massive uh, in a whole host of ways. It's the country's second most popular sport really the most popular sport is soccer uh but but it is it's enormous and in certain areas in the the sort of for afrikaners um or a, you know white ethnic group in south africa it's it is basically a religion uh it, it's just it, it's more than a sport in a lot of ways like you know not even the nfl sort of 
like college football in some ways, right? So that that the the, the spirit and the the culture and the camaraderie is all built around this thing being more than football or more than simply the sport of rugby. Uh, so it it really was a a bit of a cultural adjustment to to see. Wow, I mean, I'm I'm suddenly part of this subculture that is so massive in this country, and and you know I'm just trying to figure out the, you know, the basic rules of the sport so I can play it semi-competently. Uh, and yet, you know, for some of these kids, it's, it's in their blood. I mean, the first ball they picked up in their life was a rugby ball handed to them by their grandfather or their father or their uncle. Uh, and they've been playing it since they were, you know, literally old enough to, to toddle around. But in South Africa proper, right, uh, the history of that country, tumultuous divisive, um, I'll just say it, you know, obviously uh, historically racist and, and segregate, uh, segregationalist or segre- segregated. Um, the history of the country uh, is enmeshed in its uh, uh, love and a passion for the sport, right? They're, they're inextricable. And I'm sure you quickly got a sense of that uh, as you sort of not only learn the sport, but but sort of started to look back into some of its history. Yeah, no, no question about it. I mean, you can you can tell the history of of South African racism in many ways through through South African sport. And I got to see some of it. You know, I'm there in 1997. So it's just three years after Nelson Mandela and the ANC rise to power. Uh, and I saw some really ugly things among what are supposed to be, you know, overwhelmingly liberal, enlightened, you know, largely English speaking uh, South Africans at Rhodes University, this sort of bastion of liberalism. Uh, and yet some of the things I heard, you know, in the changing room and on the vans and the buses and that sort of thing were were eye opening because there is definitely a dynamic of you know, this this uh, culture lingering with, you know, the argument that, well, blacks aren't rugby people and, you know, saying some things that really opened my eyes. Uh, it, w- it was quite remarkable. And, and then to, you know, the way that sport interacted with the anti-apartheid movement globally is really fascinating, right? Because they understood that sort of at the epicenter of, of Afrikaner nationalism was this sport of rugby. Um, and to exclude them would, would really cut deep. And the idea of excluding them from the Olympic movement and excluding them from the sports that were so important to them, uh, particularly cricket, rugby, but also soccer. And, and they were expelled from nearly every major sporting body except for world rugby, uh, which is why in 1981 and and beyond, you could continue to have these kinds of events because a lot of sports, they were just simply excluded from. But, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a predecent, uh, or sorry, there's a, what's the word I'm looking for? A a predecent. Is that the word? Is that a word? Yes. Precedent. Precedent. There you go. uh, You know, I'm sorry. And I was an English major and I, it's been a long day. Yes. A precedent for sure. Right. Uh, in that, um, in the '60s and '70s, right, uh, this the Springbok uh, tour mechanism was sort of alive and well, right. Uh, they, they would go to various countries and and play, and and obviously, you know, uh, play against the, some of the best rugby nations uh, around. But but it was clear that uh, it wasn't sitting well with everybody as they went along in their travels, right? I mean, I guess the question really in there is, um, 
you know, you, we were talking about 1981 and, and, the, and the United States uh, component of that. But touring was a regular thing, right, for this ostensibly national team or, or nation's best team, right? And yeah, it, it wasn't so, done, it wasn't sort of all roses and smiles, right? Because apartheid was certainly on the minds of lots of people, especially as they traveled. Yeah, so in the early on in, in the wake of apartheid in 1948, you don't get too many rumblings of protest and they played the traditional powers on a regular basis and they play the sort of combined team of the of, of Wales, England, Scotland and, and Ireland, which is known as the Lions. And they certainly play their traditional rivals, New Zealand, fairly regularly. By the time you got to the late 1960s, you're beginning to have protest movements surrounding the Springboks. Uh, everywhere they go, there will be some anti-apartheid protests. And it in the late 1960s and early 1970s, it really really heated up. Uh, it really became intense to the point where, um, you know, they, they, in Australia, for example, uh, they had massive protests and, and upheaval to the point where Australia said, you know what, we're done. We're done engaging with you in sport. Uh, and in fact, the 1981 tour, the part, the, the United States part of it happens in no small part. And I know we'll get into this more a, a little bit, you know, in a few minutes, but in no small part, because Australia said, no, not only are we not giving you landing rights in Australia, we're not giving you the access to our airspace. And once that happened, uh, you know, it, it it sort of pulled everything together. But that was that was a slow process. And, and in rugby, unlike in, say, cricket or in the Olympic movement or what have you, um, it was up to individual nations to make the decision whether to, to play. So, for example, England plays South Africa as late as 1984. And it's really only after 1984 that they become uh, a pariah to the point where, in fact, in 1989, they play what amounts to a world all-star team because no national teams will come and will come and play them. And on that team for the Springboks was a guy by the name of Franz Erasmus, who was an Afrikaner from the Eastern Cape. Uh, and his nickname, because he owned, uh, because this is still the amateur era of rugby, uh, he owned a garage. And so his nickname was Domkrach, which means Jack, uh, as in, you know, the kind of leverage required to lift a car. Domkrach, or Franz Erasmus, was the head coach of the Rhodes rugby team when I was on the Rhodes rugby team. So my head coach was a, was a former Springbok. And that was his only, I believe, his only cap or one of two caps that he got playing for the Springboks. So uh, there, there is that, that connection as well. But they, were, they only became pariahs in rugby really relatively late. I mean, they played, played test matches against England um, in, into 1984. So, so it was up to individual nations because International Rugby Board did not exclude South Africa like other sports did. So maybe a, a little bit more on on the 60s in particular. I guess the question naively is why. And there are, there are a number of different events, right, it, it wrapped up in South Africa's desire to be out of the British, uh, uh, a British oversight, uh, a massacre in 1960. So it, clearly the 1960s were a tumultuous time for South Africa as a nation, but apartheid as part of that dynamic in particular, I'm guessing that sort of just started to boil to a simmer as the decade rolled on. Yeah, I mean, what the, the Sharpeville massacre in, on uh, you know, March 21st, 1960 is 
a, a vitally important event in excluding South Africa from the sort of graces of the of the world of respectable, you know, so-called Western nations. Uh, when when they, you know, when the police opened fire on unarmed people in Sharpeville and and you know the the, the guesstimates of 69 killed and 180 something wounded, we can't even really know the actual numbers, especially of the wounded, because people didn't go to the hospital unless they absolutely had to. Uh, really horrified the world, and I think the global anti-apartheid movement as much as anything gets its start in the rubble of Sharpeville. And then that's when sport becomes a really central element. Now, there have been people calling for boycotts of apartheid sport before that, but the world's attention comes to them because of Sharpeville. And then it's a sort of slow acceleration, slow exclusion, so that you know they're excluded from the 1964 Olympics, but not necessarily permanently barred until another couple of years. Um, you know, the, the FIFA, uh, removes them soon after. And then by the time you, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s accelerate, you have virtually every sporting body on earth. I mean, including chess and backgammon and, but also wrestling and track and field and, and so on and so forth have excluded South Africa. But really the 1960s begins a slow simmer and the United States is probably behind the rest of the world, frankly, because in no small part, uh, at least when it came to, you know, we had our own racial problems for one thing, but but the other aspect when it came to sport and excluding South Africa from sport is we don't really interact in their sporting world because we are minnows at best in soccer. We are we have a virtually non-existent rugby culture. We have an even less less sort of existent uh, cricket culture. And so in some ways, we're just not engaging with South Africa in the way that other countries would when they'd play cricket or when they'd have a have a Commonwealth track meet or something along those lines. Well, and, and you're also, you know, keeping it directed into the sporting realm. But I would argue, too, there's sort of the average American sort of exceptionalism, right, where it's like, oh, that's just a foreign country. And, you know, it's uh, and it took it takes events like that, you know, the the, the Sharpeville ma massacre and and other things to just even register on a radar. Right. I mean, the w sadly, the average American's not reading The Economist every week, which, by the way, could be uh, uh, a, a good idea for a lot of people to maybe sort of uh, elevate their understanding of a, of a global world and all that. Right. But you know, there's, I guess, the average American, not only from a sporting perspective, right, was probably fairly ignorant to, quote unquote, world events, in particular, what was going on in South Africa, at least early on. Right. I mean, the amount of news time that South Africa is getting in the United States in an era of 15 minutes of nightly news uh, and, you know, the local newspaper is giving it pretty much zero coverage unless a major event happens. And then the event happens and it fades away. Uh, the other thing that's going on in the United States, though, is, of course, with, with the civil rights movement, if you think about sort of the vantage point of March 1960, I mean, you've barely had the sit-in movements, you know, take place two months earlier in the United States. You have, you know, you haven't had the Freedom Rides yet. You haven't had the Albany movement. You haven't had the Birmingham campaign. You haven't had the March on Washington. So, I mean, there, this, this is still an issue that's simmering in the United States. So it's understandable, I think, to some degree, why South Africa would be a bit on the back burner, that coupled with what you say, the the, the tendency of Americans not to look outside of our own borders uh, unless like there's an emergency situation or, you know, chaos, and then you quickly turn away. And, and when we were paying attention to Africa, a lot of times it might be elsewhere anyways, right? So the Congo crisis in 1960 and, and other events like that. So it would be really, American attention would be really episodic at best when it came to something like South Africa. Well, all right. So before we get into 81 in the U.S. in particular, uh, it, it's not like, however, they were not touring, right? They were still 
the team was still able to engage in international touring. I mean, how does, okay, if it is starting to bubble up and becoming more visceral, the disdain and the, uh, you know, the, the outrage around this, how do, how does a team like this uh, get to still engage in uh, what I'm guessing are fairly lucrative tours in places like Ireland and Scotland and and other places, Australia, I'm guessing. Yeah. So, well, so Australia is the one that excluded them after 1970. But what part of what it was is that um, they would increasingly face protests. And the, the big argument that they made, and this will be familiar to American sports fan, is this idea that we want to keep politics and sport separate. Uh, and it particularly with the case of the all-white South African national rugby team that is naive at best and willful, uh, you know, in almost any circumstance. And so, you know, part of the, the situation was that it's also, there are very, very, very few what were known as, or what is known as test playing nations in rugby. So it really becomes hard to exclude anybody and not sort of cut off your own nose to spite your face from the vantage point of rugby officials. I mean, there really was sort of Scotland, Wales, Ireland, England, France, to a lesser degree, Italy, and then New Zealand, Australia. I mean, that was that was basically it. And during this time period, South Africa is widely recognized as being, you know, the best on earth most of the time. And so it becomes even harder for rugby people to, to wrap their heads around excluding South Africa until things become completely chaotic. So there's this period of flux in the 1970s where people would say things like, well, we, we of course don't support South Africa's racial politics, but they're, they're the national team, but they're not a government team. They're not supported by the government. They're not, you know, so you'd, you'd rationalize it. You'd, you'd say, well, we, we hate apartheid, of course, but you know, we'll play the Springboks because we're, we're keeping politics separate. We don't want politics to be a part of it. And South Africans would say, you know, we're, we're not we're not integrating sports and politics, even though, you know, it's an all white team in a, in a country that's, you know, 85 percent black. In the immediate years prior to the the the, um, the 1981 tour, which we, we, I promise we're going to get to. Uh, but this is all extremely important and helpful for me, certainly background. Um there's some more, uh, 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 I guess, uh, uh, more recent uh, background events in the 70s, in particular, um, you know, the Soweto riots for sure, right, uh, b- being another sort of worldwide uh, attention-grabbing uh, uh, event and, and bringing condemnation uh, anew, I guess, on an international stage again. Um, but I, I, the 76 Olympics, I think you sort of alluded to it. And there's this thing called the, and I think it's probably relevant, the Glen Eagles Agreement in 1977. Maybe a little bit of background sort of of what's sort of really starting to kind of get more pronounced in, in around that time, because that I think really sets the table for where we're going to go. Yeah. So the Glen Eagles Agreement was an agreement among Commonwealth nations effectively not to engage with apartheid South Africa in a whole host of ways. And sport is supposed to be part of that. Uh, and so there's some interesting dancing going on among the countries that do continue to play South Africa in terms of what their commitment to Glen Eagles is. Now, the problem with Glen Eagles, as much as anything, is it was idealistic, but it was non-binding uh, so that, you know, they would say, well, we as a country are not, we, you know, the, the New Zealand national rugby team is not a government institution. It is they are the national team, but they are not 
a, a nationalized team, as as it were. And so England and uh, and New Zealand would would and Ireland would sort of talk the talk, but then they would basically not prohibit the teams from traveling. Uh, and, and so increasingly, in after Soweto, you're right. That's another pivotal moment. Um, in the in the wake of that, the Springboks were less likely to be welcomed, except for in, in New Zealand in 1981, but their teams would still go and play uh, and no one would deny them, you know, at passport control or anything like that. So it, it was one of those things that was some countries really strongly adhered to it, but others didn't. And there was no real particular consequence, though, theoretically, there there could have been. So more of a political sort of posturing and and. Uh, uh, kind of arrangement versus sort of anything with real teeth to it. Yeah, shocked, shocked to find gambling in this establishment. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, that that it was recognized more in the breach and as a sort of idealistic thing. And, you know, individuals might be discouraged and you might be get you might get on a U.N. watch list or something like that. But if you were willing to endure, I mean, they were the same thing sort of with the cultural boycott. Right. Is that, you know, you're not a lot of people are signatories to it. And yet. Queen and Elton John and and for that matter, you know, lots of the United States artists go and play Sun City. So it's the same kind of thing, right? That that there's pressure and that, you know, you try to put moral suasion on people, but there is there isn't much that a lot of these countries are 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 trying to do explicitly to stop engagement. All right. Well, let's get to 1981 then, because uh, obviously this is parallels, right? So our little uh, and we're just scratching the surface of of the very intricate. Uh, and important uh, dynamics of, of the history there. So, you know, there, there are books and plenty of resources to go deeper on that for our audience. But um, let's let's get into 81 because uh, I, I sense, obviously because of the book and, and the title and all that stuff, that uh, the timing of 1981, both at the time as well as now in retrospect, is is very uh, almost like a pivot point, uh, maybe be, maybe because of, of this tour or maybe despite it. Um, but it, do I have this right, though, that the, the uh, so first of all, I guess the question is, why then the United States to come to come a tour in? Right. Because you said it before, there's no real uh, significant and don't don't hate me, rugby fans. Uh, you know, it, it's not as, uh, as deeply established and widespread, right, a sport uh, 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 here in the United States. So why the U.S.? Number two. I guess also why the U.S., but from a political perspective, the U.S. certainly is uh, aware and I'm sure uh, most cultured folks were uh, understanding of what was going on with apartheid, especially as it relates to uh, the civil rights movement in this country. And I guess the number three is, um, didn't it start in New Zealand, this tour, and, and why the adjunct, I guess? Yeah, so um, these these three things are, are kind of bundled up together. So... The, the first, you know, issue is um, in 1980, you have the election and you have Ronald Reagan win. And in fact, in 1980, there had been beginnings of conversations about the South African rugby team coming to the U.S. Would they be interested in doing that? And, and you know, it, it's really interesting because I tell a story relatively early in the book about this guy, Douglas Reed, who contacts South African rugby officials and says, hey, I have an idea. Um, and, you know, your, your country is misunderstood and you know, I believe you should come to the United States and do a rugby tour and da, 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 da. And, you know, naturally, the most powerful rugby playing nation on earth did their due diligence and they called the officials of U.S. rugby 
and said, hey, who is this guy? And they said, we've never heard of him. We don't know who he is. He is in no position to organize what are known as fixtures. So the competitions, you know, he's in no position to do it. He had no right to speak for us. This isn't something we were thinking about. But as long as we're on the phone. Uh, and they, you know, there are a couple of problems in 1980 that they're well, facing. Sorry, before we go further, who is he? Is he a political operative or something or some kind of conservative? Like, yeah, event? he's he's a, he's a dude. Uh, he's a conservative from Southern California who owns a, a business and um, had he'd been to South Africa hunting a couple of times or for deep water fishing or something. And he is one of these people who believes South Africa has a bad reputation. In fact, they're doing the right things. And, you know, they're they're a, a bulwark against communism. And, and, you know, what a lot of right wing folks in the United States believed about racial politics in the U.S. and believed about racial politics in South Africa. And and I haven't I didn't get too much more into couldn't find who he was. I, I, I believe I was able to track down, let's face it, the name isn't exactly uh, an obscure one. Um, so I think I was successfully able to find that he had died um, through some business records, but he really kind of fades to the to, to fades into the, the distance because once the South African officials contact the U.S., they say, well, yeah, but now that we have you on the phone, let's talk about it. But the other thing they say is, look, the Carter administration is likely not going to grant you visas, but we believe Ronald Reagan's going to win. And this is something that, that Douglas Reed had recognized, too, that, look, with Ronald Reagan coming to, to power, you will have a friendlier face in the White House, um, a, a more understanding face. And so at, at that point, they sort of things accelerate. And then when Australia is unwilling to provide airspace for South Africa, suddenly to go to New Zealand, they have to come through the United States anyways. And so all of those things combine in a perfect storm so that when they go to New Zealand on probably the most contentious sporting event slash series of sporting events in, in world history, um, they, they fly back through Los Angeles. And they had arranged by that point to, to have the tour. But part of it was just the happenstance that they were going to be in the United States anyways. Interesting. So, so, so yeah. logistics actually had a role to play in all of this, ironically. Yeah, no, certainly. The fact that we're going to be there anyways. Uh, and they had to stop in L.A. And then they were going to if they had been leaving the country, they'd have probably flown on to New York and then, you know, out of JFK down to South Africa. But instead, they said, well, we have these conversations going. We would be interested in playing. And here's the other thing. By this point, the United States represents the classic example of any port in a storm. Um, yeah, USA rugby was not strong at the time. Uh, certainly, it's certainly stronger now, though still very much in the category of second tier rugby, rugby nations. Um, and again, I've covered the US Eagles. I've been to matches. I, I, I do the, uh, you know, I did the Vegas and now LA sevens. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm familiar with the US rugby infrastructure and how well we've grown. But nonetheless, I mean, the US rugby is not South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, Wales, Ireland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they, they represented a chance to play because increasingly countries were like, nope, we're, we're just, we don't think now's the time. And furthermore, in the, the mid to late 1970s, a US team called the Cougars, a sort of select team, had gone to South Africa and toured. So some of these guys, from the South African rugby world, we're familiar with some of the Americans and vice versa. So that's yet another element to the to the logistics of it. Uh, and you know, they they 
they come through Los Angeles and Mayor Bradley was not thrilled about this. He was the mayor of Los Angeles, first African-American mayor of Los Angeles. You know, the L.A. Olympics are coming up and a lot of people are really legitimately concerned that the IOC will will pull the Olympics from Los Angeles. Uh, and, and so there are all these factors and, and Bradley sort of uses that. Right. So Bradley uses the, the threat of um, losing the Olympics to try to get the Springboks not to come through and not to play, but, to, you know, not successful. Interesting. So I, so how about have that sort of the um, uh, the prelude? That's the word I was looking for earlier uh, about uh, the, the, the New Zealand uh, tour in the first place. Right. Because, uh, you know, the country's South Africa's essentially an international pariah by this point. I mean, I every you know, it, it's it's much more out in the open. I think more 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 countries. It's just it's it's an obvious sort of thing. And then the the news, if you will, is uh, of international pressure. Certainly is is certainly starting to to tighten. Um, but but in New Zealand, I'm guessing this uh, from a sporting perspective, obviously very attractive, but um, but a very divisive uh, thought about having them come to New Zealand, right? To the point where. Maybe this already this wasn't going to happen even. Yeah. So there was a lot of debate um, in this the New Zealand government. Uh, there was a lot of debate. They, there had been tours to New Zealand and New Zealand tours of South Africa canceled in the in the 1970s at various points. The 81 tour was incredibly divisive, probably. Um, you know, to show one, how important rugby is, but two, how divisive the Springbok visit was possibly the most contentious period and contentious event in New Zealand history. Um, and, and certainly, you know, it, it was the most divisive event since like some labor strife in the World War One era. I mean, it was massive. The country exploded in paroxysms of violence and, and, and really chaos uh, for the 56 days that the Springboks were there. Because not only in the in the old days before, you know, now teams come over, they'll play the national team they're supposed to play. They might play one other match, but generally they come over, they play. It's a very professional setup. Then, though, not only did they have three test matches lined up against New Zealand, they also had matches throughout the country, you know, they'd play provincial teams, they'd play a university side, they'd play select sides. I mean, they played a, a bunch of games uh, and every single one of them saw massive protests. And, you know, the, the country was divided, really unlike New Zealand ever being being divided before or since on this question of playing the Springboks, uh, having them come over and so on and so forth. And, and they wouldn't play the Springboks again after 1981 until Springbok is, the Springboks are, are sort of allowed back in a way into world rugby uh, in, in, once you have the negotiations happening um, that, that'll bring Nelson Mandela and the ANC to power. So it was incredibly divisive. And in fact, um, when the original, in the original book manuscript, the New Zealand chapter was twice as long as it is in my books. It's so important, even in a book theoretically about the U.S. tour. I mean, kind of, you know, my book is intended to be uh, I was hoping to have to be really shedding light on 1981 in this, this fuller context. And I think I do a bit of that. But originally, the New Zealand chapter was something like 70 manuscript pages. Uh, and my editors uh, and my agent were, were very good about gently but firmly making me leave some and said, well, you know, maybe it's a future book. Uh, but it is, it, I would argue it's the most controversial sporting event or series of sporting events in history, and it, or at least part of a very, very, very small conversation. Do you want to at least speak, though, to, um, to, to some, of the, the, some of the sort of pointed things that happen along the way? I mean, 
uh, there's the, 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 not only is there one of the games canceled, but I'm, I'm just intrigued by their last stop in Auckland with, with this airplane that's dropping flower bombs. Yeah. So it it comes to be known as the flower bomb tour in some ways, the third test. So the other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, even in, rugby vein places like England and Ireland, it was widely recognized that when the Springboks in New Zealand played, it was it was for the the world championship, effectively, in an era before a World Cup, um, that when those two plays, it was to decide who was the best in the world. Uh, and so from a pure sporting vantage point, it is it is vital. And that's why it became so contentious in New Zealand, because rugby is, is so big. And so every match, whether it's against a provincial side or whether it's against a New Zealand national team, it was just massive protests outside, massive clashes between police and, you know, what is what is believed to be a sort of passive, um, quiet, kind little country just explodes with, with police clashing with protesters and with pro rugby people clashing with protesters and just massive, massive uh, uh, protests, uprisings, violence, chaos everywhere. And it culminates in the last test match, the third test match, which for a whole host, I mean, was going to be tense anyways, because the Springboks won one and the All Blacks won one. So this third match was going to be the rubber match. Uh, it was going to be the decider. And when you when it started, uh, it was pretty clear that this was going to be completely chaotic. And uh, a, a former military veteran got a hold of a plane uh, at a nearby airport and loaded it up with five kilogram sacks of flour uh, and flew, you know, dozens of flights over the over the pitch. I mean, so low that some of the players thought he might crash into the goalposts. Um, just just incredibly low and dropping these flower bombs. And think about the terminal velocity of five kilograms of flour dropping from from uh, you know 100 200 feet. Uh, it, it was it was crazy. And one of the players, one of the New Zealand players, actually got hit. Um, and and one of the other New Zealand players said, "Well, if there's anybody on our team with a hard enough head, it was it was him." But uh, it was it was really chaotic because you know the the yeah it was flower bombs and it came to be known as the flower bomb tour and the the pitch was muddy so they were sort of joking that it that they were all basically covered in pastry by the end of the match but it was also really frightening for the players that who also were dealing with pitches that were oftentimes covered with nails and broken glass that the protesters had had laid down um and just complete chaos and again, why it became the, the most contentious sporting event in history is this, you know, the low flying plane and the flower bombs and the, you know, all the things that went with it. Um, and it came, that was they the, played through this, through all this? Not, yeah, they played through all of it. And then it's, you know, from a rugby vantage point, um, it, it, it's controversial as well because it was 22 to 22 in the waning seconds of the match. And the official calls, you know, the referee calls. A, a penalty on something that even some of the real rugby fans had never even didn't even realize was a rule or whatever. And it gave New Zealand a chance to kick at goal, a penalty, a penalty kick, uh, which were three points. And they converted it and they ended up winning 25 to 22 in a match that some South Africans still to this day, much like the U.S. basketball in the 1972 Olympics, simply refused to recognize. Um, so from from pure rugby vantage point, it was a thrilling spectacle and worthy of the two best nations on earth. But then you have all this other stuff going on with protesters trying to break onto the pitch and police trying to keep them at bay and this airplane flying low dozens of times over the pitch and dropping flower bombs. And, and, you know, it was just absolute chaos. And, uh, 
you know, by the time the Springboks were, you know, they're facing protests every single match. By the time they're headed to the United States, these guys are exhausted. All right, what's this? Lucy Nicotine. Yes. Well, hey, look, folks, we're all adults here, and some of us choose to use nicotine to relax, focus, or just unwind after a long day. And Lucy Nicotine is a company that was created to help nicotine users find a cleaner option and feel better about the ways they consume nicotine. Now, look, I, I'm not a smoker. I've not been a chewing uh, tobacco kind of guy. Uh, we all know that uh, nicotine is absolutely endemic uh, to those uh, uh, activities. Uh, and uh, you look, if you're looking to evolve, say, from the smoking habit, uh, but recognize that nicotine is, is part of the mix, well, perhaps Lucy Nicotine uh, is a, uh, a helpful way uh, to evolve from uh, those habits. Their latest product is called Slim Nicotine Pouches, uh, which contain pure synthetic nicotine and provide the same satisfaction that nicotine users expect without any tobacco at all. Uh, Lucy Slim Pouches use the newest technology for synth synthesizing, he says, pure nicotine in the lab, none of the tobacco and all of the nicotine satisfaction. Uh, they come in three strengths, four, eight, and 12 milligrams, and three exclusive and uh, inviting flavors, spearmint, mango, and cool cider. So don't compromise when you're choosing your nicotine products. Go with the newest tobacco-free options from Lucy Nicotine. And my listeners can go to lucy.co and use the promo code GOODSEATS to get 20% off your order of Lucy Slim Pouches or any other of the Lucy Nicotine products. That's lucy.co and use promo code GOODSEATS at checkout. Now, I gotta use this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains non-tobacco nicotine and nicotine is an addictive chemical. Thank you, Lucy Nicotine, for your sponsorship of the show. And now, back to our conversation. Yeah, that, so that, that's my sort of dual question is, can you describe the psyche of this team? You know, is this galvanizing them somehow? Because it's sort of like a, a, a I'm going to call it gallows humor, but I mean, there's a, there's a you know, it's like, it's like a war effort, right? You're part of it. It's a, you just got to get through all this. Um, but then also, what's going on in the United States with the officials uh, awaiting this team's arrival? Um how much is known about what's going on in New Zealand uh, in the United States, either by the officials or in the news coverage? Uh, does anybody have any idea about what's going on there and it's coming our way? Yeah, not not that much because you have the the dual component of this being in New Zealand, which just isn't getting major news coverage in 1981 and then it being rugby which isn't getting any coverage in the sport so as they're as it's approaching there might be a you know a tiny story in the new york times but it's not going to get down to your local newspaper necessarily and if it does it's going to be you know a sidebar story that that you know is given 75 words so um and, and i know we'll we'll get to this but one of the amazing things is that when they're in new zealand these guys are celebrities right you're gonna i mean you're gonna recognize the faces of these guys just like a red sox fan is going to be able to recognize the faces of all of, of every player in the yankees i mean these guys are 
world-class athletes in the country's most popular sport, every one of them is known and, and, and can be broken down. And then they get to the United States and they are anonymous, um, it, which is, is useful for them. But yeah, I mean, and I do think there's some gallows humor. I also think there's a lot of, hey, we have a job to do, trying to keep them as isolated from it as possible, um, you know, even as you make sort of secret arrangements and secret plans. And, you know, a lot of the guys, the ones I have certainly spoken to and exchanged emails with and such, um, they really, you know, look, we can, we can argue that you can't keep sports separate from politics. Certainly I'm making a career on it, but you can understand from the vantage point of a 23 year old guy who really does just want to play rugby, how they're, they're trying to, to stay focused and not think about these things and, and still live an ordinary life. Right. So, I mean, on the way to the United States, they, they stopped, um, in, in Hawaii, uh, and went surfing. Uh, a couple, a bunch of the guys went surfing and, and there were a couple of the Springboks who were fairly liberal minded and the first black Springbok, uh, made his debut against Ireland in May, where there were also some, some, you know, in Ireland, some protests against Ireland going, but then they went to South Africa. So there aren't any protests in South Africa of, you know, he makes his debut and he, he is allowed sort of used in a lot of ways as, his name's Errol Tobias. And he was a, he was a very good player. Um, but he's kind of being used as a human shield, right? Look, we're not, how can we be racist? We have, a, you know, the term in South Africa would have been colored. Um, you know, uh, uh, we have a colored player on our team. Uh, and that was a, an official racial designation. There was African slash native, and then there was colored, which are mixed race kind of, and it's very complicated. But uh, so, so in some circles, he's being abused for being an Uncle Tom. In other circles, he's being abused because, you know, racists don't want him on the team. Uh, and he's kind of caught in the middle. He becomes best friends with a guy named Rob Lowe, who is a white liberal South African who probably has his career cut short because he, um, because of his politics. So there are all these dynamics going on. And part of it is simply, let's just get through this. But yeah, a lot of the players didn't have any more idea why they were in the United States than anybody else did. How was this uh, arrival of this uh, team and the tour in the United States being promoted? So in circles where civil rights intersected with anti-apartheid, there was a great deal of criticism. So, for example, they were going to play their first match in Chicago and Jesse Jackson and his, his push coalition uh, is central to getting the game removed from Chicago and played in, in actually in Wisconsin. Um, but generally speaking, it's it's almost like a it's almost like a, a sideline. Um, you know, they're not met with protesters in Los Angeles. They, people don't know who they are. I mean, they were locked into their hotels or their, wherever they were staying in New Zealand. Once they were there, they were there. Uh, they're, they're not about to walk the streets facing protesters. In the United States, they could literally walk down the streets of Chicago in their green blazers, uh, which, which they wore as Springboks. And people would be like, are you guys a circus troupe? Are you a theater group? Are you, what are you? Um, and these in any other, you know, in any Commonwealth nations would have been world famous. You know, they would have been, uh, the equivalent of, you know, uh, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard or, um, Carl Lewis, well, maybe not Carl Lewis in 1981 yet, but you know, these kinds of elite athletes who would have been recognized, never mind like famous baseball players, right? I mean, it would have been like Nolan Ryan walking down the street, 
you're going to know who he is. They, they didn't know who they were, even though they were dressed in their green blazers, which kind of gave them they were kind of hiding in plain sight. There were some protesters who showed up at their, the place they stayed in Chicago, but they just left through the back door and no one even even recognized them. Uh, so it was a really interesting story. You go from everybody paying attention to you to people just being like, wait, what is this? What a rugby? What? You know, it, it was all just very bizarre from the outset. Do you have any idea where in Chicago this was going to be originally held? Was it supposed to be sort of like a large spectacle, like in a soldier field thing? Or was it just going to be in a, you know, a college park of some sort? Or, or, or? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm I would, you know, I, I hadn't thought about it recently. I would have known this even, you know, six months ago. But uh, they were going to play in a actually kind of Chicago suburby area. They weren't going to play at Soldier Field or anything like that. They were going to play at a an athletic facility geared towards them playing uh, until the the protest kicked in and the the city alderman basically said no, you know, we're not going to do it in Chicago and and so it ended up being shifted to in very bizarre ways to Racine, uh, Wisconsin. Yeah. So explain that. Right. So Racine is is a uh, I won't even call it an exer, but it's, it's sort of a southern Wisconsin, somewhat almost close to bordering uh, the northern Illinois border. Um, so close enough yet far enough away, I guess. But uh, not only relocating. Right. But it's also kind of done in a clandestine manner. Right. Where it's like only a very few people kind of know about this match, which already seems wacky because it's already undermining the one of the reasons they're playing because they're here to tour the united states exactly they're going to play a midwestern all-star team and then they're going to go out east to new york and play the u.s national team known as the eagles and then the, uh, uh, and before that an eastern all-star team uh and so they there's this all this cloak and dagger stuff about going to play in Wisconsin and no one knows where they're going to play. And there's a story and I know it's true, although a lot of the people in the Midwest were like, no, we just, you know, we were just able to know where it was through our Midwestern rugby networks. But where there was a green Oldsmobile that was going to be parked at a highway rest stop and you were supposed to pull up and say, are you Checkpoint Charlie? Uh, and if you said, are you Checkpoint Charlie, then you had another couple of code words to do. And then the guy would get in his trunk and and give you directions and, and, and the information that you needed. Um, like I said, a lot of the Midwest folks are like, yeah, I never heard of that. But it certainly was a thing that happened for the for the Chicagoland folks who wanted to go up. And yeah, it ends up getting played in a city park, uh, but it gets played in a city park that's adjacent to Racine's, you know, not not segregated by law, but basically a black neighborhood, residential segregation. Um, and some protesters do get onto the pitch when they find out. But, you know, there isn't much attendance. And it's just it's so bizarre because they spend, like you said, yeah, this is supposed to be a way to sort of almost use rugby as propaganda. And instead, everything is done under the covers. And it's just very, very strange and very, very bizarre on a tour that had already been bizarre, but the American leg was was incredibly weird. Uh, and, and this was the first sign of it, where like they're doing all this crazy cloak and dagger stuff just to play a rugby match against an outside, you know, a, a sort of completely outmatched Midwestern all-star team uh, against an exhausted but still monumentally more talented and capable Springbok team. And remind me again why this tour is still, well, obviously it seems to be sort of fall, the wheels start to fall off already, but, but, but why, why again was this sort of deemed uh, a worthwhile enterprise to come to the United States, given all the stuff that led up to it and clearly seems to be playing out in this at least first match already. Yeah, well, the players in the Springboks are asking this question. Uh, so, so in a way, nobody knows. 
um, because you have a few really prominent anti-apartheid activists in the United States. Dennis Brutus, a, a famous anti-apartheid sports activist, um, is in the United States. He's at Northwestern at the time, in fact. Um, and, you know, there, there's just no one really knows. It, it seems to be placating the egos of a few American rugby officials who believe that playing the Springboks will both validate them and elevate American rugby. I mean, in a lot of ways, there was just an enormous amount of naivete, uh, to be to be completely honest. And I think a lot of these guys believed that sport and politics ought to be kept separate, and they had nothing to do with one another, and that you know this doesn't represent the South African government and all that. Now, the fact that a number of the players in an amateur era are policemen or in the military complicates that narrative because they literally go home and their day job is to enforce apartheid. Uh, but but it is, I mean, people are increasingly asking this question, especially these all-star matches. Like, why are we expending this effort to play a bunch of guys who were just gonna, just gonna hammer uh, and for no real purpose? Uh, so, so, I mean, the Springboks themselves are asking this question. Uh, and, and in some ways they feel almost like they've been betrayed by their, their leadership, even though they're enjoying shopping in the United States and they're enjoying all the things they're able to see. And they enjoy going to Disneyland in, in, uh, you know, Anaheim and, you know, they, they try to enjoy the American experience as much as possible. But, you know, if you read the accounts of the, the players themselves, they, they're asking the same questions. And Rob Lowe is like, I have no idea why we're doing this to Stoffberg, who will be a, a, a Springbok captain, um, it, that actually that year uh, is asking the same question. I mean, it, it just becomes this why no one knows. Uh, that's what makes a lot of it so bizarre because the players themselves are like, this is not benefiting my rugby. It's not benefiting my life. It's adding another three weeks onto what's been an enormously long eight weeks. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a good question that I, I still don't know if I satisfactorily answer except for. For American rugby officials, they felt like it gave them validation. And for South African rugby officials, it was the Annie Port and a Storm thing. I'm assuming they won with no 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 problem, though. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, I mean, in the in the test match, which I know we'll get to, it was close for a brief period of time because the Springboks were literally playing against an incline. But, yeah, it was, I mean, they, they dominated and could have dominated more. You know, it's, it was one of those things where you do what you need to do to win and to win comfortably and you play the best rugby that you can and you're exhausted after eight weeks. Like, you know, if the if the Springboks of June played those American teams, it would be even uglier. But, yeah, I mean, there was just no it, it wasn't competitive rugby. And that that's that was something that bothered the Springboks quite a bit as well. Like there's just that this isn't making our rugby any better. Uh, let's get home. All right. Well, tell me about the next uh, or the final two stops. Uh, the next stop was supposed to be New York City. That didn't go well. No. So the same thing. You're beginning to get news stories and especially, you know, let's face it, when the, the New York Times is your local paper as well, um, you're going to get some augmented uh, perceptions of this. So the, the story is beginning to gain some traction in the Midwestern game. The story begins to get some attention. And so by the time they get to New York, where they're going to play the Eastern All-Stars and then the, the, the U.S. Eagles, you're beginning to get some attention paid. Uh, and in the Albany area, you know, that where, where one of the matches is supposed to be played, there, there is, is going to be big protests. Uh, uh, and, and you do legitimately get protesters at this point, which is why I kind of argue that it helped to fuel America's anti-apartheid movement. Because while in the Midwest, it wasn't that well known and it was very strange and they kept it hidden, they weren't able to do that 
on the East Coast. And so when they have these matches against the Eastern All-Stars, and especially the test match uh, where they, they have to go to the Supreme Court to finally get the ability to, to play on, on First Amendment grounds, which is ironic, right? Because they're claiming it's not politics, it's not politics, it's not politics. And then they go to the court and say, hey, we have the right to, to do this irrespective of the politics, um, which from a constitutional law vantage point was probably actually the, the right argument. Um, but they, they end up going to court and getting the permission to play after losing at some of the lower levels. And, you know, it just becomes this entire, you know, bringing in the U.S. legal system and, and uh, increasing protests around the stadium in Albany and trying to keep it hush hush. And, and, and so you have pretty substantial protests at the Eastern All-Star game so that once again, when the test match is coming, they move it to a tiny little town, uh, Glenville, outside of Albany, uh, and they end up playing on a polo field and the field isn't marked correctly. And one of the players helps set up the goalposts. Uh, and it's just very strange. And in the Eastern All-Star game, the goalposts are where American football goalposts had been moved to, which is what is known as the back of the the, the back of the end zone in American football uh, it, it, instead of on the front, you know, where the goal line would be. Uh, in rugby. And, and and so just so much was was just bizarre about that as well, to the point where you get to the test match and they're only letting in a small number of officials. So to this day, it's the, the test match with the lowest attendance in, in rugby test match history. The official attendance was 28. And one of the ironies is that from the American side, this group that had gone to the Supreme Court on First Amendment grounds, then excluded, would not allow protesters anywhere near, would not allow protesters in the stadium, were doing everything they could to prevent the protesters from exercising their First Amendment rights. So it's sort of like... Yeah, and there were protesters at that Albany game, right? I I think, uh, do I have it right, like uh, people like Pete Seeger and and it was, it became kind of a cause, I'm going to call it cause celeb, right? It would be, it, it, there there were, I mean, I, I, what I can sort of, uh, sort of put to, put together here is that there were I don't know, uh, uh, hundreds of protesters uh, that they had to corral. And, and there was a pipe bomb as well in the mix. Yeah. So there had been a there had been a pipe bomb in the, the Evansville Rugby Club in the Midwest uh, that that did some damage. And then there was another bomb in Schenectady um, and, and, you know, aimed at theoretically aimed at the, the rugby, uh, the rugby officials. I mean, it got really big. There were, there were the two bombs, although one of them, it turns out was an insurance fraud case that they, they use rugby as a, as an excuse. Um, there was, there were marches in Albany, uh, that, that got to be huge. Like you said, hundreds of people by this point, uh, it is the biggest rugby has ever been in the United States, except for in 1920 and 1924, when they won the, the gold medals in, in really bizarre tournament rugby tournaments held at, at the Olympics. Uh, but it was the most attention rugby had, had ever gotten. And by this point, yeah, it had absolutely become a, a fairly significant protest movement, kind of out of nowhere. Uh, because you do, you get, you get prominent celebrities and the entire American anti-apartheid infrastructure. And you have the the capital district against apartheid sort of putting out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flyers and calling for protests and, and having this march. And it becomes this really remarkable, really remarkable moment where suddenly an anti-apartheid movement seems to be coming sort of out of nowhere. Uh, and it's, it's, it's remarkable and characterized by 
some excesses as well absolutely so so in many respects then this this tour however misguided perhaps it wound up it started to to be right you would ostensibly think it would be uh promotion of goodwill uh culture uh, uh all that kind of stuff right which you would think that countries would do with each other right um and and obviously even that was uh difficult to achieve given south africa's uh, pariah-like status uh in the sporting world and beyond on, on the global scale um it, regardless of the uh, uh, inability even just to do that, it actually sort of feels to me like, and I think this is the thesis of your book, snowball pretty quickly into something far more, shall we say, negatively metastasized uh, uh, to the point where it became a political uh, a, a catalyst, if you will, for a cause that uh, maybe most average Americans were aware of, but not sort of uh you know uh passionate about uh, it, it just seems like it steamrolled into something much different than was originally envisioned absolutely yeah well i mean what it ends up being is that rugby becomes the pretext to have this protest it, it could have been about any other thing but you suddenly have maybe the ultimate symbol of apartheid nationalism in your backyard and it, it becomes just this ma massive focus of protest from people who couldn't tell you, you know, who, who really couldn't distinguish a rugby ball from a cricket ball, but for whom the South African issue was the, the sort of cause, was the issue, was the, you know, keep in mind, you are not that far removed from the civil rights movement. So a lot of these people are veterans of the civil rights struggle. Uh, a lot of them have been involved in various protests in the 1960s. Oh, there's obviously a lot of the anti-war uh, uh, group there. There are, there are just so many factors coming together that it's incidental that it's rugby, but it was rugby, which is what makes it so strange. The other thing that becomes really bizarre about it is that in order to to, to sort of put the protesters off the trail, um, they they didn't announce who was going to who was going to be on the Springbok team. And a bunch of guys got sent off. It was supposed to be played on a Saturday afternoon. A bunch of guys got sent off. They went to the, the, the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, in, in Cooperstown. And, you know, they they found themselves actually used as a diversion. And there were there were some really resentful guys in the Springboks who came back and were like, wait a second. You played the match because a bunch of guys, the officials got together and decided to hold the test match on Friday morning at a polo field in Glenville, New York. Um, and, you know, the, the, a bunch of the guys, including Rob Lowe, um, really feel betrayed. Uh, they feel like they had been used. And among the many bizarre things about that test match, not only is it the lowest attended test match in history, it's also the only time the Springboks have played a test match in the morning, local time. Uh, so it, it just, you know, and they, they easily handled the U.S. despite the U.S. kind of stepping up and playing fairly gamely. And the main official organizing the East Coast part of it uh, is a man named Tom Selfridge. He himself was, he was, a, you know, as much as a, someone can be a rugby legend in the United States, he was a rugby legend. He uh, was in the, the sort of upper echelon of U.S. rugby. He played for the U.S. Eagles. He played for that Cougars team that toured South Africa. And he kind of single-handedly took it upon himself to exclude the protesters, to engage in the East Coast cloak and dagger stuff, to um, decide who could get in and who couldn't, um, including some pretty serious harassment.
husband of a very prominent South African rugby journalist. Uh, so it was it was all so strange, and yet it really did provide a, a something of a catalyst for an American anti-apartheid movement that would accelerate as the 1980s progressed. All right, so let's try to wrap up uh, uh, some of these tentacles here. Um, uh, and again, this is all fascinating stuff, all in you know in great detail in the book. And it, to me, it's it's. Uh, endlessly uh, intriguing and fascinating. And, and, and um, uh, so I, first of these sort of wrap-up type questions is, how is this playing out in South Africa? How much coverage is this getting? Is it playing well at home? Does anybody even know about this part of this tour that's going on? Um, I'm guessing it's being perceived as a debacle for anybody who knows what's going on up here. I, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that the things that amuse South Africans about it are things like the goalposts being in the wrong place. And, you know, the in, in some of the matches in the U.S., them not knowing what a 22, you know, what a 22 meter line is, which is important in terms of the placement of the ball to, to restart the play if it goes out of bounds or if there's a, there are a couple of other circumstances where you use what's known as the 22 meter line um, that that those bizarre aspects of it amuse South Africans. They are getting pretty good coverage of it, though, because there are journalists who have accompanied the Springboks the whole way. Uh, and so Dan Retief is one of them, and he's writing for, for uh, you know, some of the prominent newspapers in South Africa. There are others as well. So they're getting the stories um, and they're getting a hint of the bizarreness. Uh, but in a way, the journalists themselves are being shielded from some of the protests, because if you're going to cover the protests, you can't cover the matches and you're there to cover the matches, right? You're there not as a political journalist, though you kind of become one, but you're, you're there as a, as a sports journalist. I mean, you're there to write about what the Springboks do and how they're preparing for these matches and who's playing and who's playing well and what the scores are, you know? So it becomes strange because journalists end up becoming encased in this bubble as well because you can't be, you know, you, you can't be both. You can't be covering the stuff on the outside. So South Africans are oftentimes getting the rugby story which is also what they want, which even for those journalists who are sympathetic to the protests, you know, they know where their bread's buttered. So in that sense, you know, they're doing the job they're supposed to do, which is rugby first and then commentary outside of that. And in the U.S., in terms of a budding um, uh, uh, just anger uh, for what this apartheid system is all about, um, you, you, I think the argument you're making, and, and pre, pretty uh, impressively so, right, is that um, this became a very convenient, uh, shall we say, excuse or example uh, of uh, focus uh, that uh, made uh, awareness and uh, uh, activity, action, activism uh, almost uh, more coalesced and uh, focused. I guess, uh, in other matters, right? I guess yeah, I'm trying to think of like when uh, little Stephen Van Zant and, and the I ain't going to play Sun City, uh, the, the, uh, all those things sort of sort of percolate uh, more in the 80s and became much more, shall we say, mainstream thinking and many other uh, uh, points of uh, uh, disdain, frankly, and uh, 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 abhorrence to what was going on in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that happens in the 1980s is, uh, you know, I was just a kid, um, a, a kid turning into a teenager over the course of the 1980s. So so there, that's how old I am. Um, and, and one of the remarkable things is that 
1984, 1985, 1986, South Africa is on the nightly news every single night where, you know, even four or five years before that, it simply wouldn't have been. But it was, I mean, by pure time spent on the nightly news, it was one of the two or three biggest stories throughout the 1980s. Uh, And so you, you kind of have a series of coincidences and the the rugby tour. Yeah, I mean, it, it it happened to be rugby. It might have been something else. It happened to be Sun City. It might have been something else, but it, it allowed something to mobilize against. And it allowed Americans to sort of put a mirror up to their own society in some ways. And and I think it it did sort of get people thinking about South Africa in a way that they they just hadn't. You know, it, it would pop up after Sharpville. It would pop up after Soweto. It would pop up occasionally, but it became sustained by the early mid-1980s. And this is certainly a part of that process. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, when there were student protests in 1984-85, they were referring back to the rugby tour, but this is the first real, a first real massive protest against a South African thing. You know, I've done some work looking into college anti-apartheid movements, and you're beginning to have it accelerate. The first whispers of divestment campaigns are, are, you know, 60s, early 70s, but they really don't start taking place until 78, 79, 80. The first campuses start divesting, but that picks up pace in the middle of the 1980s. In 1981, when this tour is going on, the vast majority of colleges are barely beginning conversations about divestment. Uh, Because America doesn't engage with South African sport particularly often, and because South Africa was excluded from the Olympic movement, you don't have these questions. So another another sporting moment when this happened was when Zola Budd uh, ran uh, against Mary Decker in the 1984 Olympics and it was in the US and Zola Budd becomes the embodiment of apartheid despite the fact that she's running for Great Britain uh, because everybody saw that as kind of a, a, a ruse. Uh, but but the rugby tour really becomes an, a relatively early moment in the American side of things, things that had been happening a decade earlier and more in other countries where the Springboks had visited. Which makes this all uh, just a, a fascinating story. and and. Um... It, it's, uh, you know, it's it's enlightening, frankly. I, I And, you know, I, I'm trying to remember what I was thinking or doing in 1981. I was still in high school and I, I'm trying to remember if I remember any of the coverage of this. I'm sure I was aware of uh, the team being in the country and it causing some kind of consternation. But, I, you know, then then you fast forward to. Uh, you know, later in the decade where it was just on everybody's mind. I mean, people knew Nelson Mandela was. I mean, you, you, you knew much more about what was going on. And it's clear that uh, it, 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 uh, it built into a crescendo. And I, I, uh, it's really interesting to sort of see how sport and politics sort of commingled uh, in a very, um, uh, I don't know, combustible way, frankly, uh, maybe a, a completely... Uh, not envisioned by people sort of who maybe should have known better, but um, and, and maybe ironically, it, it wound up being a, a catalytic event to to help put uh, increased pressure from supposedly a, a very powerful nation against uh, what was uh, a growing chorus of disdain for for what was going on in South Africa. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that, that you know, that happened that would have drawn people's attention to it um, is that a story about the the test matches and everything surrounding it uh, took place, you know, appeared in Sports Illustrated. 
And at the time, you know, Sports Illustrated was the epicenter of the sports world. Sports Illustrated was to sports in 1981 what ESPN would become to sports in a later generation. So that when there's a story about this, there's there's obviously not a story in Sports Illustrated because this is a significant rugby story. But again, it allows sports to be the entryway to have this article just like my first real exposure to it in any meaningful way was I still remember the title because the first thing I ever wrote about Springbok rugby, I'm sure I'd be embarrassed by now, is uh, about that 1995 team that wins the World Cup. And and, uh, Price, S.L. Price wrote a story called Bach to the Future uh, about them winning the, the, the World Cup. And again, it's not really about rugby because the number of rugby articles in South Africa, I mean, uh, rugby articles in Sports Illustrated over a 70 year period, it, it could probably be counted on two hands if you needed more than one. Um, but again, it allowed sport to be a lens through which to look at other issues of politics. Um, and, and so once it gets into Sports Illustrated, in retrospect, in particular, it becomes a bigger story because, well, look at, you know, look, look at this. And they're already out of there. I mean, there's a, a final incident in the JFK airport where a couple of radical protesters threw acid uh, on what they thought was a touring, the touring party. And they, they got uh, a police officer who was blinded. And uh, it was a really, you know, a, a, a real black eye for the for the protest movement. Um, but, you know, the, the the way the story did sort of blow up and then kind of disappear in some ways, but then take other form is also somewhat fascinating because for a brief moment in 1981, rugby is a major sports story in the United States, even though it's not, it wasn't really a sports story. All right. Well, let me ask you then one last question. This is much more of a, a less uh, of a pressure cooker uh, type question. And, and, and I, I don't want to uh, sort of uh, devalue uh, the last hour and change that we've been talking about, but let's talk about specifically on the rugby side of things, the, the sport itself. Um, what, if any, effect did this tour have on uh, the sport's um, uh, future, shall we say, since then? I, I, I get the sense that it, it wasn't ultimately that much, but um, I mean, there's a very strong and rich vein of rugby culture in this country. It's not gigantic, but it's certainly very strong and passionate once you find it. Um, where in the, I don't know, in the in the various uh, uh, blips on the radar, uh, would you put this tour in terms of uh, rugby's history in this country, if at all? Yeah, I mean, it, it's probably still the biggest rugby story that's ever taken place in the United States in in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, I, I think that the impact is is fairly substantial, especially in the South African side, right? Like this will be the last tour until they're kind of welcomed back when the, when the negotiated settlements are happening. Um, but in the United States, it becomes the attempt to validate U.S. rugby instead becomes kind of a mark of shame and embarrassment uh, for anybody who is capable of being so embarrassed uh, because it backfired. It did not become the, the event that, that people thought it would. Uh, and by the time... It, by the time the 90s roll around and by the time the, 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 the last decade or two roll around and U.S. has ri- risen to become still absolutely second slash third tier nation in rugby, but also a legitimate second or third tier nation in rugby, which is to say that once you get once you, you know, get rid of the big boys, uh, the United States can now be part of a conversation of rugby with places like Georgia and Japan 
and you know we can host the All Blacks, which we're which we're doing uh, this fall. We can host Wales. We can host uh, a Springbok Wales match in the United States uh, a couple of years back in 2018, which is like the Springboks' big return uh, to the United States. The United States will you know play in the World Cup. They 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 pretty much know they're going to make the World Cup. So 1981 doesn't have a direct impact, but you can sort of trace the growth of U.S. rugby from these attempts to validate the sport in a time when, you know, they, they were, they were, you know, third or fourth tier. Um, and, and so, you know, the United States will play in the next world cup in, in, in France and they will play some of the big boys and they will maybe even scare somebody though. They probably won't, won't beat them. Um, and cause the, the problem with the professional era of rugby now, which, which kicked in after 1995 is of course that, yeah, the United States has gotten better, but now the New Zealand players and the South African players and the Australian players and the England and Wales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are professional rugby players. That's what they do. Um, they play in the, the elite leagues in the world, and there are a number of elite rugby leagues in the world. Uh, and, and so in some ways, the gap has actually – I mean the, the, score, the scores of U.S. playing South Africa have only widened um, since, you know, since 1981. But I think the U.S. is on the strongest footing it's ever been uh, in terms of rugby, not as a consequence of 1981, but as a consequence of the sport simply growing in the U.S. All right. And then final sort of part of that is, is what's your prognosis then uh, for Major League Rugby? I know pro rugby sort of tried to get up uh, and running, had a little bit some, some fits and starts. And then Major League Rugby kind of centralized the closed uh, like a Major League Soccer type system, a single entity uh, is – it seems fairly strong, uh, and it's been around for some time, despite obviously a year off for for, for COVID and stuff. Um, do you think it's got a shot to sort of find its uh, its place in the pro ranks of sports in the United States? I th- I think maybe yeah. I I do too. I, and the reason, part of the reason for it is that w- why it is hard for MLS to compete is really as much as anything a money thing. Right. You are just simply never going to be able to compete with the salaries paid in the Premier League in Syria, uh, in the Bundesliga, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, rugby, however, doesn't pay that kind of money. Right. Rugby doesn't pay the way soccer does. Rugby doesn't play, pay the way, you know, even for the elite players from South Africa, New Zealand, et cetera, uh, who go and play in in England or in France. Um, the salaries are much more reasonable so that. We can become a potentially viable league for maybe second tier global players. We can become a really legitimate retirement league like MLS has kind of tried to become. But, you know, when Beast Tendai, the Beast of Tawarira from South Africa, one of the one of the great props in world rugby, you know, kind of came to, to Washington to play in Major League Rugby for the Washington team. Uh, I do think it, it has a chance because it can know what it is, right? It can be, it'll know where it fits in the sporting hierarchy, but it can still be a reasonably successful league because you're not going to have to pay, you know, you're not going to have to pay someone $500,000 to come necessarily. Uh, Or if you do, you're going to compete very well for that person. Uh, I think there are only, the last I saw, there are only a dozen, 15, maybe 20 world rugby players earning a million pounds or more. Uh, Compare that with, just the minimum salary in American professional sports. And you can see why if you invest a little bit of money, you can be successful. So I I have, I have reasonable hopes for major league rugby. 
because I think it can be a good developmental league for American players and it can be a league that will draw some international talent precisely because you don't have to pay someone 129 million pounds over 10 years or something. Yeah, and I think you could also make the argument there's uh, there's infrastructure too, right? If you look at Major League Soccer, soccer-specific stadiums, you know, obviously probably will want to figure out other ways to generate revenue besides soccer matches, although that's probably the first uh, first thought. Um, but those, those are, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, appropriately sized, right? 15,000, 10,000, right? That's not, you know, and if there's ever an elite you know, match that you want to dovetail against, say, say the Springbok come, uh, Springbok comes again, or you want to do some kind of international rugby festival, well, then you go to the bigger uh, uh, football stadiums, right? But that feels more right, and it becomes more park-like, and it gets, it has its role, so to speak, in the in the sports uh, landscape in the United States, and it isn't necessarily the next NFL, but it could certainly find its its toehold for sure. Oh, I think I think so completely. And, and I 100 percent agree with being smart about picking your venues. Right. Because anybody who's ever hosted event, an event can tell you that you would rather have 120 people squeezed into a room that seats 110 than have 200 people show up in a, in a room that seats 10,000 uh, because optics matter. Right. And so these these purpose built stadiums, uh, you don't need to build an Anfield. Uh, you can build a, a, a five, 10, 15,000 seat stadium and do well. And like you say, yeah. And then if the if the all blacks come and play either the U.S. or play another national team, you can do Soldier Field and you can have the Americans be the sort of, um, you know, the, the, the opening act, as it were, or the Americans play out the all blacks and you're going to get, you know, you're going to get 30,000 who are all blacks fans. I mean, you, you know, there, there, there are that many New Zealanders in the United States quite easily who will, who will make that trip. So I, I do think it has a chance to be a success on its own terms. In other words, yeah, it's not going to compete with any one of, you know, six, seven, eight sports. Um, it's, it's not going to compete with not only the NBA, it's not going to compete with the WNBA, right? It's not going to compete with, with uh, the women's national soccer team. It's not going to compete, but it doesn't have to. Uh, there are plenty of rugby fans. There are plenty of college rugby players who, you know, are really passionate about the sport. And, and yeah, they may not be particularly great athletes, but but they were good and they 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 were good enough and they learned to like the sport and they support. I mean, the you know, the, the, the U.S. Rugby Sevens leg of the World, the World Sevens Tour uh, is is fun. It, it's exciting. And, and I thought moving to Los Angeles would would weaken it. And it, it really didn't. It was the last sport major sporting event that i did um uh, you know i was i was wearing my journalist hat uh at the beginning of march last year before everything shut down uh and and it, it is popular it's just not you know you don't have to be nfl popular to still be to, to still have your niche in a country of 340 million people or whatever we have well sadly the mlr did not get um uh the memo uh from what you just said because as we record this about a month after uh, the final of this year's 2021 season they played uh in the uh still even though it's been downsized uh, somewhat uh, dramatically, the uh, L.A. Memorial Coliseum, um, you know, um, 7,000 and change <laughs> fans. Uh, and, and look, on television, they, they try to put them all on one side and stuff. But but yeah, I, I mean, it feels to me like it's it's uh, this uh, and this is maybe a good sort of uh, denouement here. I, I think um, this this feels a lot if if. Any soccer fan listening, a U.S. soccer fan uh, listening to this episode, um can certainly relate because if you look at, say, the 1960s and 70s and how the sport sort of 
came and went and then came back big time and then then went away for a, a good goodly amount of time right i mean th- some of these fits and starts and and finding one's uh place in the the very competitive sports pantheon of the united states and doubly being a sport that wasn't originated here right the american exceptionalism component um this sounds a lot like rugby uh sort of following in that in those footsteps that soccer went through 40 50 years ago no, I think so. I, I think rugby in the United States is in a good place. Uh, it'll continue to have to sort of punch its weight. Um, Americans have to get over themselves with this idea that, well, if we just put together a team of NFL players, we dominate the world. I mean, maybe, but maybe not. I mean, you got to respect other other countries' sports codes as well. And other countries have great athletes. And, you know, the the, the reality is that, you know, when you're born throwing a rugby ball around, you know, believe me, there are certain things that that don't translate very well and, and that I was very weak at. So, for example, um, you know, kicking the ball when I play it, it just that that should, is supposed to be an arsenal for in the arsenal of someone who played the position I played. And I just had limited to no foot skills because I had I'd only played soccer as a little kid. I played football, but wasn't a kicker. So, you know, it it. it, it it's it's going to be more competitive, and as more people get access access to it, um, I think rugby can be big. It's just it's it's going to be what it's going to be. In terms of tackle football codes, uh, we have one that we're really good at and that's really popular. Uh, and if we can be decent at rugby and play an entertaining, and if MLR can find its niche, that's great. Um, and, and I think it is growing, and I think the soccer analogy actually is a quite good one. fascinating stuff and barely scratching the surface the book it's an excellent read it will enlighten you uh and uh, get into uh, some of the more uh head scratching and gory details it's again called flashpoint how a little known sporting event fueled america's anti-apartheid movement it is published by our pals at roman and littlefield and uh, it is available for purchase wherever you find good books of course you can find it on amazon or you'd like to find it on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com just search up this episode with Derek katzen episode number 230 my goodness and uh you'll find a convenient link to the book there and we'll get a couple of uh pesos of love thank you very much from the referral link uh but uh, wherever you get it buy it your independent bookseller or wherever you else can find it go for it because uh you you really want to read this book and and understand uh, uh, just the the, just the sheer uh, craziness uh, of pulling this tour off. Uh, and uh, in the United States, you could ar- make the argument that uh, uh, it, it quickly didn't become about the rugby. That's for sure. Um, Derek uh, can be found uh, on Twitter at DCAT Africa. DCAT Africa on Twitter. And you can also hear him if you're in the... Uh, Odessa, Midland, Texas metropolitan area. You can hear him as the voice of the UT Permian Basin Falcon football team. Uh, just uh, check your you know local listings for the games in your area and uh, hear the dulcet tones of Derek calling those games. Go Falcons. What else? On GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, our little website, not only will you find uh, this week's episode and a link to the book, but you'll find every single episode that we've ever done and all the links to those books and photography associated with that and all the show notes and 
all that kind of stuff. Uh, bookmark it. Uh, visit early and often, why don't you? You'll also find our um, our uh, a link to our uh, email address. You could do that uh, directly if you need to do that too. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you'll find links to our various social media feeds. Uh, in particular, on Facebook, we're at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on Instagram, we're at Good Seats Still Available. And on Twitter, we're at Good Seats Still. What else? Uh, you will find a link on the website at goodseatsstillavailable.com for our weekly email newsletter. Just uh, search around, find that link, give us your name and your email address, and boom, you are on the list to know what's coming up each and every week on this here little show. Thank you kindly to our pal, Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, audio excellence. You know what he does. He twiddles those knobs and uh, puts all of our pieces together. He does a great job. He does a great job every stinking week. Thank you very much, Mr. Jerry. We appreciate it. All right, we're going to leave you with some song, some tunage, um, and I think it's appropriate. It's uh, a song that came out uh, a few years after this tour, 1985 in particular, and uh, it is a protest song, back when protest songs actually mattered, back when music had teeth to it. Um, and this was uh, a, a group of, of musicians largely put together by little Stevie Van Zant of Bruce Springsteen's uh E Street Band fame, of course. Bruce is on this song as well, as well as, I don't know, a couple of dozen others. The uh, collective artist name is called Artists United Against Apartheid. It reached number 38 on the pop charts. It was released in the fall of 1985, reaching its peak position of number 38, I think in December of that year, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it is the uh, ultimate protest song about Sun City, the resort in South Africa. That was um, essentially boycotted, and, and rightly so. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, a, a showcase place for many, many top uh, musical and performing talents. Uh, and uh, Stephen Van Zandt, uh, he, he took a stance and said, that's it. We're, you know, if this apartheid thing's ever going to uh, come down and, and, and crumble uh, into oblivion, we've got to start hitting uh, South Africa and the government and, and its economy uh, in its uh, in its uh, uh, in its wake, and 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 you know, performing performances by star uh, uh, entertainers uh, was this was a showcase place, this Sun City, uh, and you're going to hear all kinds of uh, voices in here. Uh, Bob Dylan is on here, Bobby Womack, Hall and Oates, Peter Wolf, Bonnie Raitt, Pat Benatar, yes, Bruce Springsteen, Gil Scott Heron. I mean, goes on. Keith Richards is on this. Bono is on this. Uh, Run DMC, Lou Re Ringo Starr. I mean, it goes on and on and on. The Fat Boys. Oh, boy, the Fat Boys. Every, and Joey Ramone, they're all in here and many, many more. The song, uh, as you can tell very quickly, uh, gets uh, very catchy. It's called Sun City, again, from 1985. And uh, until next week, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you, uh, God willing, next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.